This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. It's time for our regular conversation with Governor John Hickenlooper. And this month's interview at the state capitol started with a request. Would you bring out your phone for me? Sure. Okay. I remember we followed you for a day, and you told me that you have a countdown on your calendar. It's the number of days left in your administration. Right. The top of, on the calendar, at the top of every day, you can see here in the upper left-hand corner, it says 239. Okay, 239 days left in this administration. I ask because the last legislative session of your administration has just wrapped up. Lots of talk indeed about whether that makes you a lame duck. Maybe just a limp, not lame. What do you want to achieve? What can you achieve between now and when your successor is sworn in? Oh, my gosh. You know, we're doing the apprenticeship program and the workforce training, uh, skillful.com, the skills-based platform. It's going to allow kids of all ages, right, so throughout their entire lives, be able to look at taking the skills they've learned, see what skills they're lacking for a specific profession, and then skillful.com will tell them where they can get those skills, what it will cost. We're trying to get, by the end of my term, a coherent, integrated plan around workforce that's going to move this state and I think the country's going to have to do this, but move this state towards a skills-based discussion day in and day out. Skills-based versus what? What's degrees. the paradigm shift? De- degrees. We, we always are talking about four-year degrees, two-year degrees. The world is changing so rapidly, and automation, imaging, artificial intelligence are going to dismantle and make irrelevant all kinds of jobs and, and, and entire professions. We've got to go be much faster at responding, and that means you've got to start looking at things from the point of view of what skills does one have and what skills are needed. If I'm in higher education, maybe I'm the president of CU or CSU, should I be shaking in my boots that the governor is speaking this way about... No, of course not. I, I mean, college degree is always going to retain its value, and it is a, the first choice of ambitious people generally. And yet under criticism for being too expensive for what it yields in some cases. And I think that's sometimes fair criticism. But again, keep in mind that, you know, 65 to 70 percent of our kids, and this is all across the country, are never going to get a four-year degree. And we've been holding this up as the the, the holy grail of how you're going to have a great life, get this college degree. And only 30 percent, 35 percent of our kids get it. The rest of them, we kind of pull out our resources and leave them to fend for themselves. At the same time, we have all these new emerging industries where we need technicians and data analysts and people that just know a little tech. They don't need a a four-year degree in it, but they need to acquire the right skills. I want to focus on another issue related to young people, because earlier this week, you announced the formation of a task force to look into the juvenile justice system. You said this is part of an ongoing effort to keep youth out of jails and prisons. I wonder if there's a particular story or trend that moved you to do this. Well, three Saturdays ago, I was at a National Governors Association meeting, and the governor of Connecticut, Daniel Malloy, was describing to me seven years ago, he did a very similar convening of all the stakeholders, and they went full tilt at making sure that kids don't go into prison. They do everything they can to get those kids reoriented. And so not only has their prison population gone down dramatically, so they're saving tens and ultimately hundreds of millions of dollars, but their crime rate has gone down. So the rest of us in society are actually safer even as we're saving money. That is a model that is worth pursuing. And where does the change have to come to make that happen here? So you need to work with district attorneys. 
You need to work with judges. You need to work with a lot of the nonprofits that provide interventions and, and uh, mentoring to young kids who've made a mistake. We have uh, youth facilities, detention facilities that really aren't jails, but they're the next step before you go to jail. Part of this is looking at how do you change the activities within youth detention facilities to get them job training, get them really material benefits, counseling, for instance, but things that are going to greatly improve the probability that they're going to not end up in jail. Late in the most recent legislative session, one of the measures that came up uh, had to do with a so-called red flag gun law. It would have allowed judges to prevent people from having firearms who are a threat to themselves or others. It passed the House, but it didn't make it out of committee in the Senate, although it had bipartisan support, a lot of law enforcement backing. I know you'd considered taking executive action on a red flag law, but you decided against it. Why? You know, we looked at an executive order. We still are looking at it, but it would never have the same heft and, and have the same outcomes that we could have gotten through legislation. And it would have passed. There were the votes in both houses. It would have passed. Again, as often seems to happen, a small number of people using the cohesion of a political party are able to keep something like this from getting out onto the floor. You were assured there were votes in the Republican-led Senate? You only needed a couple votes, right? Uh, really, you only need one vote to, to flip that. And there were several people that had expressed a strong interest. Do I have a proxy that anyone signed? No. But, you, you said you might still be considering something? Yeah, we're, we're certainly looking if there's something we could do that would have a material benefit. But in a thing like this, a statute is really where you're going to get maximum benefit. The legislature made inroads on three areas that have been tricky for governors even before you. Transportation, education, and the state pension system, PARA. Hundreds of millions of dollars in the 2019 budget uh, were poured in to address those areas. And... I want you to speak to the next governor about the budgetary issues that he or she will inherit. Well, we were cautious, uh, maybe not as cautious as some would like, but we really did look at what are the parts of, of the investment that are base building. In other words, the next governor, these are revenues that they're going to have to spend year after year after year. And most of those were dedicated towards education and para. And obviously para, a large part of para serves school teachers. And well, not just school teachers, but other school employees. So that's where most of the base building went. The transportation, the largest amount of transportation this year was one-time only money, right? It was just in the next, this year and next year, under $600 million. But that's it. So, when you, so you're so, saying that the recurring funding is just not happening as you would have liked, perhaps, in transportation. And there is the question of whether voters might pass a tax increase that the business community might put on the ballot. There's the question of whether voters would approve some bonding. Uh, You have said in the past that you'd support a tax increase for roads. Would you actively campaign for it? Well, it depends on what it looks like, but I certainly, I mean, if you're going to have an economy grow like the Colorado economy, you better be willing to invest in infrastructure so that you don't suffer the the congestion and the traffic delays and all the the negative uh, outcomes of that growth. And to do that takes resources. If you look each year between inflation, overall the fuel efficiency in vehicles, and this is only going to increase, means that we're getting less money through the gas tax. Whereas concrete 
asphalt, all the things it takes to build a road, are increasing by more than inflation in most cases. Each year we're having less and less money to put on transportation. One thing I'm hearing for the candidates for governor, especially on the Republican side, though, is that there are efficiencies to be had, that CDOT is budgetarily fat, and that it could be leaner and meaner and do more with what it has. Yeah, and you know what's interesting is most of the, the Republicans who are so critical haven't ever opened the books, haven't gone and looked. Some of them have never really run a large enterprise. But CDOT is a bunch of engineers, right, trying to use science and data to find the, the highest quality, lowest cost solutions to road issues. And whether you're talking about plowing mountain passes or whether you're designing guardrails, they are about the best at trying to find the lowest cost and the highest benefit. They all get paid less than they would get in the private sector. I don't know where these people think they're going to find all this fat. It's, it's, it's a wonderful, and I'm not sure when this became kind of the, the Republican mantra that every, everything in government's fat. We went through the Great Recession. We leaned everything down, right? And we've been very careful not to pull it back up. We've tried to make sure that as we get more funding back, how do we make sure that we're getting the maximum benefit? Anything else you've heard on the campaign trail that has caught your ear? Well, I think most, both Republicans and Democrats on the gubernatorial campaign trail recognize we have a need for transportation infrastructure. It'll be interesting to see whether, you know, whether they have concrete plans. I haven't seen very many. Or plans for concrete. <laughs> You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're back at the state capitol for our regular conversation with Colorado's Governor John Hickenlooper. I want to move on to energy, and specifically as it relates to Longmont. That city tried to ban fracking, and the state Supreme Court smacked it down. Now the city is poised to pay a pair of oil and gas companies $3 million never to drill in city limits. Longmont would in exchange lease 516 acres of city-owned mineral rights in Weld County to the companies. A final vote on this is scheduled in Longmont for next week. What do you make of this approach? Well, I haven't seen all the details, but on the surface, it looks like the appropriate way that municipalities can deal with drilling and fracking within their city limits. I've always said the biggest problem is this is someone's private property. And now what the cities are doing are saying, all right, if this is someone's private property— we will buy that private property, and we will make sure that we trade them other leases. We will find a way to make sure that we haven't taken their private property. We're just going to move this, this activity that we find so odious that we're going to move it out of our city limits. I don't see a problem with it. I, it, I don't see it in any way as a negative thing that government shouldn't be doing this. You, again, we're not Russia. We're not China. We can't just snatch someone's private property because we don't approve of that activity. Could it lead to a have and have not, though? In other words, cities that then can afford to pay uh, drillers to go elsewhere will do so, and those that can't won't. So you'll have patches of drilling in poorer communities, for instance. I don't know how broadly this will be carried on, because it's not inexpensive, right? You're talking millions of dollars for a relatively small town. I think that, that over time, you might see other communities trying to figure out some way to finance it. Maybe they take out bonds or, or whatever they try. But I don't, I mean, there are wealthier cities, right? And there are less wealthy cities. And oftentimes that distribution, we try to moderate where, wherever we can, right? Education, the state will provide additional revenues, and perhaps this would be a case where the state could provide additional revenues to supplement 
a, a less wealthy community. But that's be, with this General Assembly, I think that would probably be very difficult to... With the makeup of the legislature, money. you're saying. Yes. So it, it could result in uh, some unevenness, if you will. Yeah, I don't, I don't see if the state is unwilling to come in and, and, and try and create some balance based on the relative affluence of a community. But not every community hates drilling at, at the same level. Uh, in some places, the community has kind of decided, hey, we accept this. A vacancy is coming on the state Supreme Court, and you've just gotten three names from a judicial nominating committee that you'll choose from. You've got two sitting judges on this list, uh, including actually the man who presided over the Aurora Theater shooting trial. You also have a former judge on the list. I think this means, once this appointment is through, that you'll have appointed five of the seven justices on the state Supreme Court. Have you done so with an intentional eye of saying, I want the court to look like this? Is there a longer strategy here? You know, we've tried to avoid specific issues. How would you vote on Tabor, right? We don't ask that. Sort of litmus test. Yeah, we don't. We've avoided any litmus test. But we have looked for core values, uh, judges that recognize the importance of small businesses and that small businesses have rights as well and, and that they are often... Uh, don't have the money to successfully lobby or adjudicate in other ways their needs or their their difficulties. I think we've always put at the top of every list that you know one of the one of the first questions is how do people stand on on civil rights and making sure that every single person in the state is treated fairly. Is that a litmus test? Yes, I think that is that that, that would be, if you were going to give one litmus test that people have to recognize that every citizen, every, every human being in Colorado has certain inalienable rights. I mean, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find a judge who'd say no to that. No, I think you're right. But, but I think asking the questions and listening to how they articulate and talk about it is illuminating. Well, finally, I'm interested in your thoughts on the ongoing saga of the Denver Post. Recently, the editorial page editor Chuck Plunkett resigned, protesting the paper's hedge fund owner, which has gutted the newsroom. A short time later, two other senior editors quit, and Dean Singleton, the former owner of The Post, resigned as its chairman and left his position on the editorial board as well. Uh, In an interview last month with none other than the Denver Post, you said you've had close to two dozen discussions with various people about the paper, adding, I don't think it's inappropriate if I could get the right people together, if there was some opportunity Mostly what I am is, you said, I think a sounding board to put people together. Obvious questions of wanting the press to be independent from government here. But I wonder if there's been anything specific that has come up. There are a lot of stakeholders that have a self-interest in an independent free press. I think it is a great benefit to government to have reporters uncovering corruption of one sort or another. Oftentimes, we wouldn't know about it if it wasn't for the media. And as embarrassing as it sometimes is, the bottom line is it makes government better and it improves our community. So anything solid come out of these? I mean, I've heard a lot of talk. There are different groups that are talking about uh, how they might buy the post, which is an uphill battle. Well, certainly Alden has given no indication that they have any interest in selling uh, their interest in the Denver Post. So that's the line you're hearing as well. Yeah, I I think there's pretty close to a zero chance of that, at least in the short term. I do hear from a couple different groups uh, that, 
they're trying to rustle up some investors and look at what would an alternative news media uh, instrument look like? I mean, would it, would it be in, in the form of paper or would it be completely technologic? Would they start out with certain advertisers? And, and I mean, they, they Won't gotta, the free market take care of this? Well, I think the real trouble, the reason, the problem we have is that the free market no longer can, can find a way to monetize the value of independent reporting. Re- independent reporting is expensive if it's done right. Uh, I'm not sure if this is a leap, but your wife, Robin, is an executive at Liberty Media, which is one of the world's largest media companies. Does that qualify as the right people? I mean, have, have those conversations you referenced been with John Malone, who owns Liberty? Uh, I have not talked to John Malone. Okay. But I have talked to Robin <laughs> frequently, and certainly she sees it as a, in a similar vein, that this is a, a serious concern. Governor, thank you for being with us. Always a pleasure. Democrat John Hickenlooper is Colorado's governor. We speak regularly at the state capitol. Now, a question you may have never thought to ask, but the answer surprised us. What happens to fish when wildfires tear through the backcountry? Well, with Colorado braced for more fire, we're going to answer that question today. Doug Krieger is chief of fisheries for Colorado Parks and Wildlife, and he's here to talk to us about fish rescue, not just in wildfire, but in drought as well. Welcome to the program. Yeah, good morning, Ryan. Glad to be here. You might think fisher in water seems like a safe place to be in a fire, uh, but that's not necessarily the case, I guess. What can happen to fish in a fire? Well, you know, uh, the most immediate part is, is the fire, of course, um, but uh, that's probably not the roughest part. It's typically the aftermath when the the silt and debris starts flowing downstream. That's what really gives fish problems. Because after a fire, uh, the nature of the soil and uh, the nature of how water runs off of it means that waterways become rather murky and filled with debris. They are. I mean, they're they're about black with with ash and sediment and and debris coming off those side slopes, and and that uh, presents a lot of problems for for trout in those basins. Can that kill fish? It can, yeah. Uh, you know, you have a couple of pieces. Part of it's just water quality where, you know, pH changes. Uh, you have uh, decreased oxygen, but probably the worst part is just sediment. You know, it, it, it clogs can clog their gills and basically suffocate the fish. Your fish rescue teams are also prepared to mobilize when drought threatens fish. And we know that uh, lots of Colorado is now under drought how does drought imperil fish? Well, for the most part, you know, what we're going to see and uh, anticipate this year for sure, uh-huh. like we did in 2002, uh, is just reduced flows. And sometimes, you know, these are headwater streams that some of these native cutthroats are residing in. And so at times there's not much water anyway. And in times of drought, what what we have is reduced flows. And sometimes we get down to almost just standing pools of water where you really can't see water flowing. And that uh, crowds fish, uh, makes them susceptible to, to predators like raccoons or, or birds. And so it becomes a vulnerable life for them. What is the interest for Colorado in particular, the state of Colorado, in rescuing fish, either ahead of fires during or right after or ahead of drought? Well, we have, you know, we've been 
trying to maintain our legacy of native cutthroats in the state. Uh, there's a there's a number of them in, across our our state and in different different types, uh, different subspecies, and so that's that's a group of fish that we pay particular attention to. The cutthroat trout, right? Exactly, native cutthroat trout that were here originally before settlers you know came here and started moving around other species and bringing in non-natives like you know what is commonly you know found here is rainbows and browns and brook trout. But the uh, cutthroats have been able to survive, and those are the ones we we want to protect and maintain over time. All right. Paint us a picture of what this looks like. So maybe first for fires and then for drought. If a wildfire is raging in the backcountry near where fish are, what do your teams do? When do they activate, and, and what do they do? Well, typically we've been already been monitoring, you know, so that our biologists are out right now. Uh, setting up uh, temperature loggers so we we can keep track of temperatures. Uh, we know what stream flows are, and so we're we're watching those kind of drought conditions. and And those are vulnerable streams are the ones we're particularly being attention attention to because of the possibilities for uh, of fires as well. So when you say you're monitoring temperatures, you mean of the water, right? Okay. Yeah. Exactly. And so. you'd expect that would go up in fire conditions. Is that is that what I'm you hearing? You bet, yeah. And, you know, we'll, we'll watch those temperatures increase during the summer as drought gets more intense. And uh, with that, uh, if we have possibilities of fire, uh, we're, we're ready to move to try to relocate those fish out of those, those susceptible zones. And you would come in before fire rages, during fires ahead of the, give me a sense of the timing here. Yeah. Uh, you know, all of a sudden we've got a fire burning. Yeah. Uh, we get the call. Uh, then we have to work with uh, the, the the fire command centers to figure out exactly where those fires are in relation to the where the fish are actually living, and so fish really in the whole basin can be vulnerable. They don't have to be vulnerable just at the point of fire, but downstream as well, where some of this debris would be uh, moving downstream. Okay. So, so we're watching those, and we're ready to go with the crews to. Uh, mobilize and and work with our forest service partners if need be. And then when you are looking out for drought, uh, you are monitoring for drought conditions throughout the state and potentially for when these bodies of water might just become unlivable in a way for fish. Right, exactly. Uh, we, We don't want to move fish unless we have to, but if it gets to a situation we feel those fish are vulnerable to loss, then we'll move in and try to find them a, a more suitable home for a while. Well, I'm uh, eager to know how you do that. So take us into the specifics, into the scene. So the way we uh, typically not only uh, sample fish to check them once in a while, but also to move them is to use uh, backpack electrofishing shockers. Backpack electrofishing <laughs> shockers. So, uh, yeah, uh, and... Uh, some people say it's got a little bit of a Ghostbusters look to it. It's okay. about two and a half feet tall, a foot wide. Has a, a it's battery powered, uh, but has a lot of electronics and a couple of uh, wands that we use in the water to actually put a charge in the water, and that uh, ends up stunning fish momentarily until our crews can grab those fish with nets and move them out of that uh, out of that elect- electrical field and back into behind us in the stream where they come right out of it and. And uh, we tow them, we tow this little barge that we put the fish into. So, 
Okay, so the barge filled with water, obviously. Exactly, yeah. It just kind of sits in the stream and and gives gives a place for the fish to uh, uh, live for a while while we're uh, we're moving through the stream and shocking up above it. Okay, and then where do you move the fish? Well, we can move them however is most appropriate. What we want to do is get them downstream, get them out of the drainage, get them to a hatchery truck, and move those to one of our hatcheries where they're going to be put into secure water. So that could be uh, packing them out on backpacks, taking them out on bucket brigades, uh, could be on horse horses, on panniers, uh, could be by helicopters, or it could be by four-wheelers and, and trailers. So My goodness. whatever whatever the, the situation allows us to do most expediently, basically. What have been some of the largest fish rescues? Uh, you know, one of the first that we did uh, was back in... Uh, 2010, when we had the Medno fire, uh, which raged, uh, I think it burned about 6,000 acres above the Sand Dunes uh, National Monument at that time. And so we have Rio Grande cutthroats in Medno Creek. Uh, The fire was above it, but we knew that uh, possibly those summer storms that follow fires would bring down that ash and, and, and take out those fish. So we went in and moved, moved some of those fish. Do you remember how many? I don't recall how many. Usually we're, we're trying to get at least 200 fish out. Okay. Uh, so it's always a decision on do we take all the fish or just some of the fish. And so it's kind of a, a you know, a, a call we have to make. If we think the fish might survive, possible, then we'll, we'll leave some. And the idea here as well is the proper management of these fish, I guess, so that they don't have to be listed for instance, because some of these are, are some of these threatened or potentially endangered. Uh, the greenback cutthroat trout is the only one that's federally threatened right now. Okay. But the Rio Grande and the Colorado River uh, cutthroats are not, and so that's that really is our goal: is to maintain these fish in a in in a secure location so they're stable and they don't need to be listed. When they're listed in on in terms of federal legislation, then they're kind of on you know then they're on. Uh, you know, intensive care, basically, and we don't want to get them to that point. Do the fish get returned to their environments when it's safe again, or what? Uh, typically, in the in the in the in situation of drought, yeah, you know, we we come back out of drought. The next year could be just fine. If we have flowing water again, we'll move fish back into those areas, and then sometimes they are able to survive through those drought conditions. So we're just adding an extra level of insurance. Uh, in terms of fires, it depends on how. Uh, how hard the the drainage has been burned. Uh, the last rescue we did was in 2016 with the Hayden Pass fire uh, along the uh, upper part of the Arkansas River. And in there, the habitat has been so decimated that it's going to be years before we're able to move fish back into that those areas. And so they will stay in the state hatcheries? Uh, we have brood stocks in the hatchery that we develop and, and uh, have young fish. And sometimes we'll move those fish into another appropriate water uh, that they can, you know, hang on to uh, for a while until we can move fish out of those streams back to the original stream. Well, this has been fascinating. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Doug Krieger is the Colorado Parks and Wildlife Fish Chief, and he retires at the end of the month after 32 years. He plans to spend his time, how else, fishing. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
Wild horses are symbols of the American West, of freedom and wide open spaces. Yet more than a third of Mustangs don't actually live in the wild, and the growing herds cost taxpayers millions of dollars. These animals are caught in a naughty bureaucratic meltdown over how to manage them. Last month, the Bureau of Land Management gave Congress a range of options for shrinking the population. Those options include large-scale sterilization and the slaughter of thousands of animals. These options are controversial and expensive, says Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Dave Phillips of Colorado Springs. He's the author of Wild Horse Country, and let's listen back to our conversation from late last year. Welcome back to the program. Thanks. Great to be here. You watched a wild horse roundup conducted by the Bureau of Land Management. You were told to stand in one spot, not move from it, and it gave you a pretty good idea of what a roundup is like. So taking these horses from the Wild West to somewhere else. We'll talk about where that somewhere else is in a bit. But what is a roundup like? They're highly controversial. Well, so this is what we've been doing for 40 years to try and keep wild horses population numbers stable. Uh, Every year in dozens of places around the West, we use helicopters to sort of sweep the desert and bring horses into a funnel-shaped pen where they they then go into a corral and, and someone closes the gate and that's it. They go into sort of the bureaucratic system, which which the federal government calls the, the quote-unquote holding system. The holding system. And are the horses terrified by this? It is something to see. I mean, it really is something out of a movie to see these horses galloping across the desert. I mean, you can imagine being chased like a helicopter by a helicopter. Anyone would be terrorized. But yeah, they they um, are chased for miles at top speed across the desert. And, and oftentimes a lot of them are hurt by the time they get to the corrals. This can injure the horses. You write about uh, the presence of a Judas horse. This is a horse that's essentially trained to lead the other horses into the trap. Yeah. So we've been chasing... Um, we as Westerners have been chasing Mustangs for a really long time, even before the government got into the business. And and uh, Mustangers, as the cowboys who do, did this quickly learned, that if you had one tame horse who was trained to run into the trap, uh, it could sort of act as a leader to uh, lead the rest of the herd in and makes it a lot easier. Do some horses die in this process? Some, not many. Uh, actually, the, the big problem with rounding up horses by helicopter is not that so many are died or injured. It's what the heck do you do with the horses afterwards? So we've spent about a billion dollars gathering wild horses over the decades. We're going to spend a billion more taking care of the ones that we gathered. And if we want to get down to a a goal population uh, that's sustainable, we're going to have to spend a billion more to gather more. And we just can't sustain it. Well, let's talk about where the horses are shipped to in a moment. But I want to establish the contours of wild horse country first. This includes Colorado and uh, the the names of places where these wild horses roam speak in, in some ways to their desolation. Will you read a bit from the book that describes wild horse country? I'd love to. Uh, let me first say that Almost all of wild horse country is between the Rockies and the Sierra Nevada in the in the deserts of the Great Basin. Uh, it's a patchwork of sort of the unused areas that were left over after after the settlement of the West was done. So the official government names of designated wild horse ranges in wild horse country give some taste of the landscape. Granite, lava beds, slate range, high rock, rocky hills, red rock, 
Sand Canyon, Sand Basin, Sand Springs, Black Mountain, Bald Mountain, Dead Mountain. Just reading these names makes you thirsty. They are the names that map the history of people who came looking for something and found instead only what one gray-haired curator with dirty bifocals at a one-room roadside Nevada history museum described to me as nothing but miles and miles of miles and miles. (sighs) They are the names of want, failure, hideouts, last stands, and wind. Names that even the hardy homesteaders we learn about in school sized up and passed over. Stinking water, salt wells, rattlesnake, dog skin, cyclone rim, devil's garden, robber's roost, hard trigger, murderer's creek, dead man valley, confusion, Harvey's fear. It is not the land the horses chose. It is the land that was left to choose. Hard scrabble islands of desiccated emptiness that herds were pushed onto. Put together the patchwork where wild horses are found now in the West, and you have an area the size of Alabama and a population of humans near zero. My goodness. That landscape would make me think the horses are incredibly sickly and barely hanging on because there would be so little to subsist on. But you don't really find that when you witness the roundup. Well, that's exactly what I was warned about by by government wild horse managers, that, look, these horses are living on areas with no forage, they're, they're undernourished, we have to remove them. And yet, in, in almost every case where I've observed them personally, uh, these horses are, are beautiful. I mean, to, to I am admittedly a horse novice, but to the untrained eye, they are, they are healthy and vibrant and uh, certainly don't show a whole lot of signs of, of suffering. So does this mean that there's not widespread agreement that the populations are either out of control or unsustainable? Is there disagreement about the health of the wild horse and whether they need to be rounded up in this way? Man, in the wild horse world, there is disagreement about pretty much everything. Uh, I would say that the the government set population of about 27,000 is about the middle of the road in terms of the politics. There are a lot of people who say, just let them grow and don't manage them at all and let nature sort things out. And there are people who say, round them all up. They're, they're just a bunch of, you know, sort of feral invasives that we need to get rid of. Invasives? Are they, are they pests? Are they nuisances to some people? Uh, certainly anybody who is in the uh, livestock business in the West does not like them, you know, because they're both going after the same grass. And that idea of being invasive was something I really thought hard about in my, my journey through wild horse country. So here's an, an interesting part about wild horses. Okay. Uh, they actually um, got their start in North America about 55 million years ago. And then they turned into this Serengeti of different horse species that roamed the entire continent ever since and spread all over the world. Now, I want to underline this because I think a lot of people have the impression that horses are not native to the to the United States, to, to North America, that they were brought here by uh, the Spaniards in particular. Th- that is true. But what you find is that there was a thriving horse population uh, a long ways back on this continent, that they were essentially eliminated, hunted, and then they return um, with colonizers bringing the horses with them. Uh, Was that a revelation for you? I think somewhere back in in high school biology class, we probably had a page on it. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, honestly, when I first started getting interested in wild horses, I'd grown up in Colorado. I was born here. 
And until I was probably about 30, I had no idea that wild horses still existed. Real wild horses, not some curated little herd in a national park, but free roaming, honest to God, you know, descended from the Spanish horses. So it got me to thinking, okay, do they belong here or not? You know, if they were introduced by the Spanish. And I I have a a telling uh, little factoid that I use that puts it in perspective. Sure. So, like I said, they they started here 55 million years ago. They were here until about 10,000 years ago when they disappeared, by the way, right about the time that um, uh, the first humans showed up in North America. Draw your own conclusions. Fossil records uh, demonstrate all this. Right. And so um, if you condense that whole history into a 24-hour clock, the wild horse would have thrived in North America right until about 17 seconds before midnight when it would have disappeared right about the time that humans showed up, only to show up in the last second of the day with the Spanish. So the question is, with that history, are they native or invasive? Does that 16-second gap make them belong or not? One of the things that that I found by talking to uh, biologists is that the landscape that they left is more or less the landscape they came back to. And that's maybe one of the reasons they were able to spread throughout the West so well and so quickly, and they still thrive today. And I suppose this question of whether they are native or not, or if they are invasive, really influences the policy and how to manage them. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and I'm speaking with David Phillips, winner of the Pulitzer Prize, the Colorado Springs uh, writer, journalist, Uh, has authored Wild Horse Country, the History, Myth, and Future of the Mustang. This is incredibly controversial territory about how to manage these horses. And let's get to where they go once they're rounded up. Uh, Right. So so, this is is becoming a big bill for the American people. Like I said, the the scraps of land that are left to them are are not very productive and, and they're not very big. And so the government, I think in its wisdom, decided, hey, look, we have to have a set sustainable population. And if we get too many horses on the land, we're going we're gonna to remove them with helicopters. Okay, so they decided, here's what we're going to do. We're going to remove them and we'll let people adopt them. So every year people do adopt Mustangs and, and Mustangs have gone on to do very many wonderful and interesting things. They essentially tame them, you were yeah, saying? Yeah, you bet. Saddle horses um, and revered by a lot of people for their stamina. But there have never been enough adopters to make up for the horses that we remove. So we essentially have government surplus of several thousand horses a year. Now, during the 80s and 90s, uh, the government quietly sold them to slaughter. And as the public learned more about that and, and became outraged, uh, that has stopped. So instead, what we do is we put them into what the government calls the holding system. And the holding system is essentially a network of uh, ranches, mostly in the Flint Hills of Kansas and Oklahoma, mostly owned by very wealthy men, uh, where we pay to store excess horses to the tune of about $50 million a year. Is it a nice life for them? It's gorgeous. It is some of the most gorgeous country you can ever imagine. Now, uh, it is a very different life from being in the wild. They're separated by gender, of course, because you don't want horses in storage to reproduce. Um, But in a very ironic way, they are now living in uh, areas where wild horses once lived and, and ranchers and farmers got rid of them. So now, because of their strange history, they've come full circle to places where they've been eradicated. You write in this book that only two animals have been protected by name by Congress. The bald eagle is one of them, and wild horses are the other. 
So this all stems from a declaration that the wild horse ought to roam free, at least in part. Then you say the American people uh, got a whiff of horse slaughter and that practice stopped. What's the idea under this new administration about how to manage wild horses? And is there any talk of the availability of horse meat? Maybe that's an indelicate question in some circles. Well, so let me first say that I think that the reason that they are preserved like the the bald eagle and they are unique in that way is that they are probably the most American animal in our imagination. If you think about it, the wild horse is an immigrant. The wild horse has no special pedigree or status. It, It got what it got through work and grit. Uh, the wild horse symbolizes liberty. And so in a lot of ways, the wild horse is the story we tell ourselves about ourselves, right? Mm -hmm. It symbolizes our democracy. And that's why we've tried to protect it. The question is, how do you protect the idea while also dealing with the biology, these extra horses? Um, There's movement in Congress amongst Republicans and has been for a very long time to make it easier to sell horses to slaughter. So that if the slaughter weren't happening necessarily in the United States, what, you'd export horses for that? That's what would probably happen if this is successful. Uh, Right now, uh, domestic horses can be slaughtered and are sent to either Canada or Mexico um, for that to happen. And then most of the meat is uh, frozen and exported to either Europe or China. Um, So far, Republicans have been unsuccessful in that because it is such a difficult and divisive thing to vote for. That the wild horses be sent to slaughter. That's right. I mean, imagine if you're a congressman who doesn't really have a stake in it and somebody asks you to put your name on the let's kill wild horses bill. Um, I think that people who put these bills forward are talking about fiscal responsibility. They say, hey, look, these are unwanted horses. Why are we paying $50 million a year for them? Um, Let's sell them and get rid of this problem. And the opponents are saying, no, these animals are protected. These animals, this surplus was created through mismanagement, and now you, uh, the government, must deal with it in a humane way. So there have been, they have been at loggerheads for more than a decade over this question. I want to say that the legend of the white stallion seems to be a tale retold countless times with many variations and is really part of the history and the myth of the Mustang. Tell us about it. So this is one of the tall tales that showed up in the frontier, you know, uh, back before any of the West was settled. Trappers started telling a story about a ghost stallion who couldn't be caught. Uh, He'd be spotted on the edge of, of the horizon or tossing his tail, you know, on the edge of a canyon or something. But no matter who tried to go after him or no matter what technique they used, he would always get away. And, you know, it's one of those tales that grew in the telling. But it really said something about how we started to see the horse as this creature that signified uh, liberty. And the funny thing is, so this tale of this white beast that would be pursued but could never be caught and said something about the men who chased it, uh, eventually made it into the literary canon, but not as the white stallion. It, It made it in there as Moby Dick. Oh, okay. I, I can see the the parallels for sure. Yeah, and and actually, Melville mentions in his, in his book that he was familiar with the White Stallion, and and he somehow, as a, a man who'd gone to sea, uh, transformed it into into a different story. Well, let me go from the mythic to the brass tacks here. Aren't there other ways to control a wild horse population beyond rounding them up and shipping them to Kansas? Uh, We've talked on this program about innovative birth control, for instance, or using predators. I mean, could mountain lions 
be of some use in this regard. So the interesting thing is if you really want to preserve the horse, you have to both find a way to make the biology sustainable and you have to find a way to protect the idea. Because after all, what we are trying to protect is the idea, this embodiment of liberty, right? So for about 20 years, in very limited numbers, we've been trying to use birth control, essentially a, a dart gun that, that makes mares infertile for about a year. And that works really well. It is kind of a pain to go out in the field and distribute, but so is rounding up horses by helicopter. So it could be done. Okay. But the problem is, is that you don't preserve the idea, right? How can you have a symbol of the wild and free be tightly controlled in such a, a fundamental idea as, as its, its reproduction? So that leaves us with mountain lions. And when you mention mountain lions amongst uh, wildlife managers, they will immediately laugh you out of the room. It's seen as so preposterous that it marks you as a neophyte. How so? Uh, I just don't think they think it's viable. Um, but when I, when I started looking at that question uh, in my book, what I noticed is that there are pages and pages of field biology studies where either people went out to study mountain lions or people went out to study wild horses. And in their months in the field, their research was interrupted again and again and again by the fact that mountain lions were eating so many wild horses that it was getting in the way of their data collection. So oh. here sort of the in the background of what they were trying to answer was this dynamic that they were also trying to ignore that mountain lions are eating uh, a lot of wild horses. Now, what's interesting about this is the BLM has never tried to understand and capitalize on this dynamic. They don't know how many mountain lions eat horses. They don't know where. They don't know why. Uh, all they say in their literature is essentially that it doesn't happen and therefore can't be looked at as a, as a management process. I imagine that there are any number of ranchers who would be afraid uh, that their livestock would be rendered vulnerable by mountain lions as well. That's part of this debate. That's right. Uh, where would I go in Colorado if I want to see a true wild horse? Where Where is wild horse country here? Well, there's some really beautiful uh, herds in, in the state. The most accessible is probably the Book Cliffs, uh, the Little Book Cliffs, which is right above Grand Junction, just off of I-70. Uh, you can also go down to Disappointment Valley, which is more down um, in the, the southwestern corner of the state. Or you can go up uh, towards the Wyoming border near um, Dinosaur. All of these areas have places where you are fairly easily accessible. You can see the horses. Of course, you have to be careful not to get too close because they are really wild horses. But um, it's beautiful to see. Is the U.S. policy towards wild horses rational? Well, consider this. We've spent a billion dollars to round them up. We're spending a billion dollars to store what we've already rounded up. And if we want to get to a sustainable population, we're going to spend a billion dollars more to remove all for an animal that we're preserving because it's wild and free. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Um, I looked at what could we do to encourage more mountain lions in more places. I'm not saying that they are the one easy solution. Um, but I think even if you had had mountain lions active in, in a third of these places, you could pretty much make your program sustainable and save tens of millions of dollars at the same time. And it's something that, that not a single person in, in the world of wild horse management is even looking at. And to me, that is not rational, and it needs to change. I think what's fascinating is that in, in making policy, you've got to deal with the reality, and you have to deal with 
the mythology and the symbol of wild horses. Thanks so much for sharing your reporting with us. Thank you so much for having me on. New York Times national correspondent Dave Phillips of Colorado Springs. He's the author of Wild Horse Country, The History, Myth, and Future of the Mustang. He's also just written an analysis in The Times titled Let Mountain Lions Eat Horses. He notes that is not among the options the Bureau of Land Management recently presented to Congress for cutting the herds. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Thanks for being with us.